Hi, this is Emma Gannon and welcome to The Success Myth Diaries. This is a brand new mini-series to accompany my new book, The Success Myth, Letting Go of Having It All, which is out on May the 18th of this year. My book unpicks the eight success myths from happiness to money to productivity to celebrity to the idea of arriving. And it looks at all the different ways that traditional success is marketed to us and how it can take us off track to what really matters to make us personally feel fulfilled. To celebrate, I'm interviewing a selection of my favourite people to talk about success, what it means to them. I've asked them to come with their three success myths that we will unpick together. And this mini series is all about getting under the skin of why many things we think will make us happy and give us eternal success often never do and how to really find success for ourselves and build those foundations to live a life on our own terms. My book is part memoir, part manifesto, and it looks at my own relationship with success over the years and all the inspiration and all the research that I've come across along the way to help do things differently. You can get your copy in the show notes now, and I hope you enjoy this episode with Chelsea Fagan, founder and CEO of The Financial Diet and author of the new novel, A Perfect Vintage. Chelsea really is no bullshit when it comes to money, talking about success and carving out a career and life on your own terms that genuinely makes you happy. I feel like we have so much in common. We were both born in 1989. We both started writing on the internet when we were little baby millennials, making our money in strange ways online. And we're both authors and we are both working for ourselves. And I'm sure there's loads of other things, but welcome. I'm so excited to talk to you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So the theme of this little mini series episode is on the topic of success. And I feel like we're going to talk about your projects that you've got going on now, but I really wanted to talk to you under this theme. I think you've got so much wisdom and such a wise head on your shoulders that I often tap into to kind of steer me on course. So I thought we could start off with the first success myth, which was around money. Obviously, you are the founder and CEO of The Financial Diet. You've been talking about money for years, but through your quite a unique lens, I would say, or at least a refreshing lens. This myth around endless money, like more and more and more making us happy. You wrote an incredible piece for LinkedIn called My Selfish Choice to Pay Myself Less. Could we just start there? Because that piece is amazing. Thank you. So tell me, why did you want to write that piece? Because CEOs, if we're going to be stereotypical, normally pay themselves, I think, like 400 times more, I think you say in that article, and and you've chosen not to do that. I think it is the ethical thing to do, but kind of almost more pertinently, I just don't want the pressure that comes along with having those kind of salaries to maintain. Um, For myself or for anyone else, Uh, we do a four-day work week at my company. I you know, have pretty famously, like I, one of the things I pride myself on most in life is that I'm never very busy. I get nine hours of sleep a night. Like I, I just like living a good life and work is part of that. And I enjoy what I do. Obviously I really like, you know, I love my employees. I love uh, what we do in, you know, uh, in terms of the actual work we produce, but, um, my work is a pretty small part of my life and I don't want it to grow beyond the scope that it's in more than, I guess, 32 hours a week, um, which it would really need to if I were supporting that kind of salary. And in terms of money, um, you know, I think that 
part of the other reason why it's just deeply unappealing to me to earn a lot more money is because, you know, one of the things that we talk about most on TFD is uh, lifestyle inflation, lifestyle creep. Um, you know, for me, I, I feel that I've already achieved a financial, like my husband and I were dual income. We don't want children. We live in a home that we got at the bottom of the COVID market here in New York. Like we live below our means and I don't really need more money. I don't want it. It wouldn't make me happier if I had it. Um, and I also don't want to uh, be constantly putting myself on the hamster wheel that comes with um, just sort of having more for the sake of having more, which is very, very easy to do. I'm so fascinated with this because I I really hear what you're saying. And I think it can be quite personal as well to each of us, like what enough feels like. And it feels like to me that you've sussed out what enough is to you. Did you get a feeling? Was it like a tangible moment where you were like, oh yeah, I have reached this level where I believe more won't create extra happiness or whatever? Well, I mean, uh, for example, in uh, starting a publishing imprint and, and investing in my novel that I have coming out, I'm putting somewhere between... Twenty-five and thirty-five thousand dollars into it um, of my own money, and I can afford to take that risk, and I can afford to—I'm not going to lose it, but I could afford to lose it. Um, and it was worth doing just for its own sake. And to me, you know, the ability to take on a project like that, and the ability to invest in it, and to pay people fairly, and to do all that—like to me again, especially as someone who has no aspiration to have children, I don't even own a car. Like I don't have a whole lot of, you know, very expensive things on the horizon. I already bought my home. Like if I can afford to do that and still, you know, save healthy for retirement every month and pay my bills and go out to dinner with my friends and travel, um, that's it to me. That's like, I've beaten, I've defeated capitalism. Like I won the game. Um, and that number could be different for everyone. Maybe other people don't necessarily have um, the desire to invest in a project uh, like I do, but maybe they have a desire to have a child or they have a desire to, um, you know, have a summer home or, you know, whatever the desire might be. I think once you reach a point in your life where any of your desires are not mutually exclusive with your other desires, that to me is the all time highest level of achievement. Yeah, it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently, because even though I've called my book The Success Myth, I feel like I could have called it The Excess Myth. Like this idea that excess is the goal. I'm starting to like physically in my body, like get the ick around something that is just so extravagant or excess. Obviously, it ties in with capitalism, but also the planet at large. How do you talk with about money in a way that makes you feel free? I know that you talk a lot about how you used to be quite bad with money, which I find really hard to believe, Chelsea, because you, to the outside, you're like literally so sorted, like down to your amazing hair. I'm like, how were you ever, <laughs> ever a hot mess or whatever? Is there an element of being good with money makes you and, you know, enables you to be freer? Girl, I was not just a mess. I was the mess. Like I had, I was fired from every job I had. I got arrested. Like I was uh, severely in debt. I was dodging collection agencies. I had like the lowest possible credit score you can have. Like I had, I was yeah, I was not doing good. Um, and, you know, in a lot of ways, I was the same person that I am today. I just didn't have like, something I've talked about a lot before is that it's, it's a lot easier to be a good person 
when you have money. Um, like, and when I look back at the kind of person that I was, like, I would like lie on my resume to get into jobs. I would like, I was a somewhat conniving person, but I think it was more that I was just trying to like hack my way into the life that I wanted. And I had no degree. I had no money. I didn't come from a privileged background. And I aspired to things that were pretty generally outside of my realm of uh, possibility. So I look back and I, I think part of growing up and um, becoming healthy and comfortable with things like money is to not use your current self as a reason to beat up or denigrate your former self. I think a lot of people feel a ton of shame around things that they used to do, things that they had to do, things that they um, felt obligated to do, um, which is really common, especially in the States where, you know, so much of what is required to exist at a certain level in society is extremely expensive and not accessible to everyone. I mean, healthcare isn't free. Educations aren't free. Like all of these things are to some extent class signifiers in the U.S., um, so a lot of people, I think, have a tendency to want to escape that as quickly as possible and then kind of look back on their former self um, with a lot of judgment. Um, and for me, I think part of what is ultimately freeing about money and what we really talk about at TFD is being good with money at the end of the day doesn't necessarily mean having a lot of it. It doesn't mean being good at math or, you know, really sort of gamifying it. It just means being in a place where you don't think about it, where it doesn't have any emotional weight to you. Uh, it's just a facilitator. Um, and so that to me, and part of that is also looking back at that person who was making all these decisions that I wouldn't make today because I don't have to and saying, that person was not maybe handling, she was not playing her cards in the best possible way, um, but she was smart and she was trying to hack her way into things and she was playing in a broken system. Um, and now I think there was a time in my journey to being better with money where it was all about sort of proving something to myself and to other people because I had messed up so badly. Um, and now it's that I don't care at all. And I don't have any judgment to myself at any stage in that process. Because again, like I said, it's so much easier to be a certain kind of person when you, when you have money. Mm -hmm. It's so true. It's like you, you had to do what you had to do at that time. And in a way, it's not wasted. You learn so much from them as well. And I think the same sometimes with like my spending habits, like they, if I think about them, I, they can bring me shame if I think about them for too long. And obviously I choose not to feel too bad about it now, but mainly because I feel like life is like a trap sometimes, like trying not to spend all your money on just utter crap that other people want you to spend it on. And so it can be quite empowering, I think, to make those decisions and talking to people who have taken pay cuts who are happier, people who are earning the same, but working less hours money itself sometimes isn't the goal, really. It's like how we're arriving at that money. Yeah. And I think, I mean, to your point about looking at spending, like I used to, I got myself into severe credit card debt because I was spending on, you know, nonsense. But I look back at the society that I was in, that I, I was in an extremely affluent area where, you know, people had a lot of, you know, class signifiers, the kids got BMWs for their 16th birthday, they were, you know, everything was brand name. And I look at, you know, what a lower income teenager would feel in that situation. It's absolutely no surprise and no criticism to her that as soon as someone handed her a credit card, she would go and spend on all the things that made her feel like 
she belonged, you know, and I wouldn't do those things now, not because I'm a better person, but because I don't feel that I have to prove anything by the things that I'm wearing. I don't feel that I have uh, that sort of hurdle to, to jump over. Um, But if I did, maybe I would spend on those things. And then you look at a lot of people who, you know, are in, who are less privileged, who are less outwardly conforming to society's expectations. I mean, for example, you know, there are entire, you know, races of women and and men in America where their natural hair, the way it comes out of their head is not considered professional in many contexts, you know? So if that person has to spend hundreds of dollars a month to look a certain way or to overcompensate in the way that they dress in order to be taken seriously. I don't blame them at all for those for those spending choices. I blame the context that they're living in. So true. Thank you so much for that. And that's really reminded me in many ways to be more aware. And also, I know it sounds so cliche, but like as I get older, the more I'm happy in myself, the more I don't need to put wallpaper on myself to like give people the signifier. I think I'm okay the way I am um, getting there at least. Um, Okay, so let's move on to your next success myth, which is the myth that traditional publishing is the only way forward. So I watched your YouTube video not that long ago announcing your incredible debut novel, which has the most amazing cover, by the way. And really you've created, well, a world a vibe, a story, a way of living. Um, It's very chic and very you and very cool. And, you know, as someone who has been in the publishing industry for so long and definitely have seen its faults, um, I found it super inspiring you talking about this. So please just tell us the story really about how it came about. I know it wasn't easy either. No, although looking back, I think it all happened in the perfect way and I'm really glad I did it this way. But so I've published traditionally uh, a few times and I will be publishing traditional, my company uh, will be publishing traditionally again uh, next year. So I'm very familiar with the process, been around that ringer many, many times. Um, But this was my first uh, fiction book. And I wrote the manuscript. I don't know how it is in the UK, but in the US, you basically have to write the whole manuscript before it will be looked at by editors. Um, So I worked on it with my agent last year um, and we took it to a very limited group of editors. And um, pretty quickly, their responses were pretty disheartening in terms of, you know, there was a real push to make it conform to certain genre expectations. Um, Romance is one of the most lucrative genres of publishing, but it is genre fiction, which means it has to not only conform to a lot of expectations, they're generally only released as paperbacks, they're generally put in a different section of the bookstore, the advances are rather low, At every level, it is lucrative for publishers, but not great for authors, I would say. And I was not really happy with some of the editorial suggestions and comparison titles and things like that that I was hearing. Um, I ended up meeting an editor at uh, Big Five Publisher who really immediately fell in love with the project, um, but her bosses had kind of a similar take um, to the other editors that we'd been hearing. So I spoke to her off the record and I was like, do you want to just work on this together? Um, And she was enthusiastic. So I told my agent the next day to just pull it from consideration and that I would do it myself. So as I mentioned, I've invested as of now, probably like $27,000, most of which goes to fees for editing, design, marketing. I commissioned a painting for the cover. um, And most of the women that I work with are on a flat fee and a revenue share. Um, And I'm able to revenue share because, and this is the other reason why I think I would probably never uh, traditionally publish uh, a paperback novel again, um, 
publishing does have a lot of benefits when you're doing like a a more um, high production book, like the next book that we'll be doing with my company has a lot of really um, high high production design elements and things like that. But for, for these books, they're extremely easy to produce. You can do print on demand, so you don't have to deal with warehousing and distribution. Um, you can be in all the brick and mortar stores. There's no need anymore for those middlemen. And the money is so much better. Um, it's between four and seven times more per copy sold. So if I sell 100,000 copies of the book, between the advance that I would have had to earn out with a publisher and then what those royalties would be, which is generally 7.5% of uh, profits on trade paperback, you'd probably be looking at somewhere between like 100 and $150,000 as opposed to before profit profit sharing somewhere between six and $700,000 for that same quantity of books sold. So I do want to say, you know, the resources that I have at my disposal, both financially and I work in media, I have a very large platform that I speak to every day. Um, you know, my co-founder at my my main company, she is a designer. She designed the cover. Um, I was able to work with, you know, really talented editors and artists and things like that. That's not available to everyone. However, I do think for a lot more authors, there are more resources available to them than they would probably think. And if nothing else, I I sincerely hope that this rise in indie publishing being more and more accessible and less and less gatekept will put at minimum pressure on publishers to, for example, raise the 7.5% royalty on trade paperback, which in my opinion is absolutely criminal. It's twice that for hardcover, but most genre books don't get put out in hardcover. They never even have a chance to earn that kind of money. So I think there's a lot of change that needs to happen. And I hope that more people having access will sort of force that change because publishers will have less and less of a monopoly. Um, There still are barriers for sure. Um, But one thing that I I do want to stress to anyone who's considering publishing is that like, for example, I have traditionally published many times before, all of the marketing that I'm currently doing, all of the event planning, the mailers that I'm sending out, like I would say a good 90% of it, I have to do anyway. Like we had an 11 city book tour for our last book. We funded that ourselves. We got the corporate sponsors. We got the food and beverage sponsors. Like we did all of that. And like all of uh, most of the press placements, most of like the influencer marketing, things like that. Um, And to be honest, I would want to do it anyway myself, even if I didn't have to, but most authors have to even higher ticket ones. Um, So I do think for me, to to our earlier conversation about not wanting to earn more money, I think, as I mentioned in my video, when you reach a place where more money doesn't matter to you, in the sense of like, if if a if a publishing house were to hand me a you know thirty five or fifty thousand dollar advance today, it would not change my life in any capacity. I would just put it into retirement savings. Um, once you no longer have that and you don't need those resources, all that's left is institutional prestige and validation, um, which I could care less about because I've done it before. I could do it again if I wanted to. It doesn't like that stuff to me, as I said in the video, is often what keeps people from making the choices that are best for them. I know so many people in media who work jobs or have worked jobs that are terrible hours, terrible pay, terrible work-life balance, terrible sort of um, work environment because they want to be able to say, I work at this magazine or I work at this publisher. Um, And once you remove that from the equation and don't even have it as a card on the table anymore, I think it frees you up to be a lot more um, discerning about what actually matters to you. And, And in the end, probably will make a lot more money for doing it that way anyway.
it's very exciting and I'm very much on board. And I think there's so much wrong with the system, like you say. And and the fact that you can take it into your own hands is very empowering. I think what's interesting as well, just on the topic of success, you just touched on it there, that this like sort of uh, the prestige, that sort of like smoke and mirrors of like, I work at Condé Nast, I have a book deal, like that sort of you're not really getting paid that much, but like you can put it in your bio and it looks very fancy and it can, I don't know, make your self-esteem lift slightly if you need that. What if someone's really feeling not very confident? I don't know if you were just born this way, Chelsea, or whether you taught yourself how to be more confident over the years. Um, No, I definitely used to be very, very not confident. I'll say that much. Very insecure. I was always very extroverted and outgoing, but very insecure. The number one thing is, and you can write it down if it's helpful to think of it in those terms, but do everything in your power to separate what actually has value for you versus what has value for other people. Um, You know, if you're working a job that other people are impressed by, but you're not happy at the end of the day, um, that's a huge red flag. If you're wearing an outfit that is, you know, trendy and appealing, but you don't feel comfortable in it or your most authentic self in it, that that's a big red flag. And There are decisions like that for absolutely every aspect of life. And it is not until you are able to really clarify and and listen to and follow the things that actually have value for yourself. And it's not to say you should be an utterly selfish person. Like part of that means cultivating, you know, really strong relationships, taking care of other people, being there for other people, but not doing it for people who you think you should be doing it for, doing it for the people who actually love and care for you in return, who are actually there for you. For me, when I think about the times that I was least confident, most insecure, it's when I was most concerned with other people's perception. And it's not that no one else's perception matters, but the number of people whose perception matters is extremely limited. And it varies depending on what you're talking about. And anyone beyond that, that you might be listening to is uh, an absolute waste of time. I love that. And what about metrics of success then when it's on your own terms? Because if a book is traditionally published, you know, you can use some other markers of like, has it made the list, a bestseller list, or how many copies sold or whatever metric is like put onto you. And I think that is a challenge in itself. So what would success look like for you for this book? So I know that there's a lot of things like that, that as a an indie published person, I will almost certainly never have access to, right? Like the... There was a really interesting article recently, actually, on how the New York Times bestseller list actually works. Um, A lot of people don't know that it's like manually curated. There's a really distinct relationship between traditional publishing and a lot of those institutional conferrers of value. So all of that, I just like out the door. I know I can see how many books I sell. So I know where I'm pacing as compared to, you know, a book that would be on that list. Um, But ultimately I could exceed it and it wouldn't necessarily matter. It's also worth noting that they have taken many steps in recent years to tilt it toward more literary hardcover releases um, and away from genre fiction, which is, in my opinion, another really big problem, because if you were to open up these lists to everyone, essentially, it would be heavily dominated by romance, horror, sci-fi, mm. all of those things. The TikTok books. Exactly. And those are the books that they're essentially rigging the system against because they want it to be the more prestigious literary fiction books that come out in hardcover first or the few releases that they sort of um, frame in that way, which I also think is is, is something that I find deeply unfair to, especially, you know, in the genre that I'm putting myself in romance, you know, I know off the top of my head, a half dozen self indie published 
authors who are selling millions of books. I mean, massive, massive quantities. They'll never make those lists. They'll never be featured in magazine profiles. They'll never, they'll never get that validation. And for me, I genuinely don't care in the sense that I want this to be profitable. I want myself and the women that I'm profit sharing with to have an amazing stream of passive income. I want people to love it. I want to do more of them and have a ton of fun with it. Um, But those lists don't necessarily like that doesn't weigh for me. However, I think the fact that so many people for whom that would be a really important thing and they deserve it and they should have access to it, similar to the royalties on paperbacks, I think that's another area where I wish we could start to really push some institutional change. But I I understand in some ways why it won't be. So those are out and off the table. But again, those are just external validators. They have nothing to do with the actual material impact on my life. Um, in terms of metrics, you know, like I said, I can look at the data. I'm a data nerd. I look at data every day. So I like to look at what's, you know, what's doing well, what's not, et cetera, um, in terms of marketing and promotion. But for me to consider it a success, my internal goal is I would like to sell 100,000 copies of the book, which is not far from the amount of copies I sold with my last book. It feels very in the realm of possibility. Um, And mostly because I want to make sure that I can fund as much or better in terms of upfront investment for the next one, and ideally do it for a title that isn't my own. When you do something like this that is very bold, you are paving the way for other people to take note and see how you've done it and be inspired to do it. Um, It takes people to kind of put their neck out a bit and just like try new things. And yeah, it's really, really exciting. And I guess a question sometimes I get, or not really a pushback, but just like a comment, do you have to like be traditionally successful first and then you can go off and do your own thing because you've built that platform and you have built a career over years? But I'm seeing people kind of come out and do their own thing from the start. I wondered if you have seen those examples as well. I wouldn't say traditionally in the sense that like, you don't have to get, like you don't have to be anointed by a an institution in terms of traditional success. Like I've never been, I mean, I, and part of the reason I should say why things like lists and features and things don't matter is because my company, The Financial Diet, has been featured in basically every major publication. We've had profiles, we've had photo shoots, we've had all this stuff. It doesn't do shit. Like, it really doesn't. It doesn't move the needle whatsoever. Like, and it gets a fraction of the engagement as like a good YouTube video we'll get that we produce. So you don't need that. And in fact, sometimes I think PR can work against you in certain ways. Um, But I will say that having a platform, which I've seen people build in a very grassroots way, similar to the way we've done it at TFD, makes it infinitely easier to do what it is that you're looking to do. I will say that there are increasingly ways, like for example, I have not spent $1 on PR, but I have a marketing partner that I work with for my book who the whole strategy is just targeting small influencers, book clubs, like little it purely grassroots. And that is something like, because you can spend an enormous amount of time and money pitching big publications, um, which is what a lot of people I think, think that they need to do. You are much better off, in my opinion, reaching out to a thousand smaller people. 
And you have a much, much better chance, even if you don't have a large platform of getting some traction there, you'll still need to invest time and money, but you won't necessarily need the big platform. In fact, fun fact, um, on NetGalley, which is where uh, books, for those listening who might not know, it's where books go um, before they're published, where people can read a copy in advance in exchange for leaving reviews. Um, by far the number one reason, because people who requested, and my, my book has been very, very heavily requested on that website, the, the largest reason that people request it is because of the cover. They don't know me. They don't follow me. They have no idea who I am. They request it because of the cover. So I would say that someone, and yes, part of that is having the startup energy from having a platform, but suffice to say, like even without people necessarily knowing or following you, a good product will start to gain traction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And last question on this, just before we move on to the last success myth. So I know that you can kind of not really care about the traditional systems in a way because you, you know, I'm the same, like I make quite a lot of money off Substack now and I love it and I'm free and I have no middlemen and it's amazing. And I'm making more money from Substack than some of my previous book advances. Like, isn't that incredible? But is there a part of you that like kind of wants to change the system? Like when you speak about these amazing creators, like your book, for example, not getting the credit it deserves, does it not, does it make you want to change the system or are you genuinely like, I don't have the energy for that. I'm going to just carry on doing my thing. Oh, absolutely. I've done some content kind of pulling the curtain back. I'll be doing a full financial and logistical breakdown on pub date to sort of demystify as much as I can of the process. Um, and then I will also be offering, I'll probably do like a free class for anyone who buys the book or something, but I'm going to just do a full class of like, this is how to do it this way if you want to do it. But I mean, do you want to make the publishers see and wake up? Or is that something, is that a battle you're not interested in necessarily taking on? It's not a battle I'm not interested in. I just don't think it works that way. Because ultimately what you're, re- who you would really need to speak to are executives. And ultimately people listen to collective action, right? People listen to other people having alternatives. So for me, the only way to affect change is to give enough people alternatives that authors start having enough leverage to walk away from shitty deals or Mm -hmm. to demand better or to say, uh, now because of this demystification, I know how to do it myself if I need to. So I don't have to just take whatever deal is handed to me. And I think only through that collectively sort of seeding out, will there be even a chance of weighting the the um, the scales in the favor of creators and authors? That makes so much sense. <laughs> I'm very passive aggressive about the industry and I'll like write all these tweets about how, how I want it to change. But like you said, it's kind of by example and giving people options, sharing our experiences that ultimately will make change. So it's amazing that you're sharing so much of the process. Oh yeah, I can't wait. Um, <laughs> So the last success myth is about the four day work week. And this is something you do. It's your, you know, you've been a case study for this in like national press. You talk really openly and brilliantly about it. So if the myth is that the four day week doesn't work, what are your comments on how it does work? Every bit of data that has been done on it shows that, um, especially for like professional office, white collar jobs, uh, most people aren't even working a, a full 40 hour week anyway. Um, and people become more efficient, more productive, employee retention goes up, like every positive metric goes up, um, for companies that do the four day work week. We have enough data to see it now. Um, I think a lot of people 
are uh, attached to a very outdated idea of what work needs to look like, you know, for the same reason that a lot of people are still insisting going back to the office full time. But I think someone on Twitter was like, <laughs> we're really hearing from the contingent of like men in the office who hate their families. Um, but that really is it. Like a lot of people, the people who are who are opposed to these things um, either feel the need to justify their own importance and seem more essential than they are, um, or they uh, just don't really like or have much of a life outside of their work. And so they don't want it to take less time. There are industries for which you wouldn't just be able to make the switch like that. For example, industries where you need round the clock coverage, uh, hospitals, things like that. But then it's a question of reduce executive compensation and hire more people. Like it's not even, that's not a complicated equation. So I really don't buy any excuses that it's not doable. And we're going to be doing a book uh, with TFD next year that will have a whole chapter on this that I'm writing myself. And uh, it'll have sort of like a little breakdown of how to pitch this in your own workplace. Ah, amazing. Like a sample PowerPoint and like what arguments work for different situations and whatnot. That's so good because my follow-up question would be about just how people can go about pitching this to their team or bringing it up or, or you know, I know people that have made slideshows being like, this is why I would like one day off a week for whatever reason, having a family, working on a side project, day off, whatever, but it should be kind of easier than that, shouldn't it? 100%. That's a perfect ending. Thank you so, so much. I'm really excited for you. I'll put the link to A Perfect Vintage in the show notes. And of course, you know, The Financial Diet, um, you know, all those links as well, so you can follow along. But, you know, I'm feeling optimistic. I don't know if you are. Maybe there will be change. I'm feeling very optimistic because, you know, there will be for me. And I will say that so much of what I've learned through this process is like so easily replicable that I, if, if only like five authors decide they could maybe do it this way, at least a little bit, like to me, that's a massive victory because it is really not that complicated. Mm. And I like, to be honest, I like the idea and I always have done of like straddling both worlds. It's exciting. It is very exciting. Thank you for having me, Emma. Thank you so much. 